0: Let's begin. <coughs> the first issue is that today happens to be, tonight and tomorrow, happens to be the Yahrzeit of Altarev. The author of the Sefer that we are reading. The Yardzeit is Chavdal Tevis, the 24th of Tevis. He passed away in the beginning of 1813. Is there ta- mm-hmm. Yes, yes. In Chabad we say Tachnon on a site. We only don't say Tachnan on a, a Chag aga'ula", a day that Rabbeim were redeemed from prison. But we do say Tachnan on the Yard site. In fact, somebody once asked, the Rebbe said, he asked the Firi Ke Rebbe why we don't abstain from Tachnan on the Yard uh, It says in Kabbalah that it's a great day of joy in the heavens. So the Rebbe's answer was When is there a better day to say Tachnan than on the Yard yorzeit? an opportunity. In other words, it's a positive day for the soul, and it's a day that should be utilized by the souls that are still in bodies. That means us. On the Rebbe the the al al passing, is a very, very important piece of Chabad history because uh, it involved the Napoleonic War between Russia and France that uh, most from Jews hoped that the French would win, Napoleon would win. They believed that uh, he was a democrat and he would be uh, more favorably disposed towards the Jewish people, which frankly was not the truth. He was an emperor. He was a. He was not at all into one man, one vote. He was into one man, the only vote. <laughs> and in addition, he was a real apocalypse. He was a real heretic. He really mocked God and religion. And um, his intentions were to secularize the world. Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, yes. And the Alter was one of the few tzaddikim who opposed him. It's, it's a long story, which I don't have time to get into, but there were three great holy masters tzaddikim, big Hasidic rebbes who supported Napoleon Bonaparte the Koshnitz of Magid, the, the Mendel of Rimunov and the Choyza, the famous seer of Lublin and their student Ibn Aftali Disagreed with his rebbes and sided with the Alter Rebbe and the Alter Rebbe had said that to defeat Napoleon it may cost him his life he said that and it did he uh, passed away at the exact moment that the last French soldiers left Russian soil. The al ran away from the front because he didn't want to be under French occupation. He hated Napoleon. He saw Napoleon as the embodiment of everything evil. Not just because he was a warrior, not because he was a person who got his kicks out of war. I mean, Napoleon was entertained by war. And war is killing him. Mean, there's no nice way to make it. Napoleon thought war was you know, he, he believed in what they call chivalry. Chivalry, He saw, he saw victory and conquest as honor. And um, he was a bad man. But in addition, he was a very, very uh, godless person. He believed that he was, in fact, God, as far as he was concerned, for all intents and purposes. He was a witch. And the Al rebbe hated him. I don't mean it in a religious sense. I mean it in a... But he was also a witch. He had powers he of the man. occult. That's what yeah. the Alt-Rebbe said. The said he was a Mechashem. The hated him. And um, he was a very powerful personality. He's the, the, you know, he's the bright moment in the French history, <laughs> which ended in failure. Um, and the al prayed for him to be defeated. There's a lot of interesting stories. One of the stories was that it was declared in the heavens that whomever would blow shofar first on Rosh Hashanah, his side would win. So the Koshim Tzermaket got up very, very early and he made a very quick minion for Shachris and for lending the Torah. and by six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning he picked up the Shafer. He picks up the Shafer and says, Ah <laughs> the Litvak. Hotmer gechapt. The Litvak beat me to it. The Al was called the Litvak. Al got up in the morning, went to the mikveh, took his time, he blew Shayfer before darkening. <laughs> so this is the story. And the Al paid with his life. He passed away. Um, Tonight is the art of the Alter Rebbe. It's the conclusion of the Al Rebbe's life. And according to Teirin, according to Hasidis, we call it an aliyah. His whole life ascends. On right. the day that a person passes away, all of his accomplishments during the course of his entire life ascend. Al Rebbe was a man of enormous tension and pressure and challenge and extraordinary success. He was a man of phenomenal success. In so many ways. He's left his mark on Kali Yisrael, incredibly. I mean, the Tanya is just one of the Al-Talabah's contributions. al made a Sidid, al made a Shulchan made many Takunas, many enactments that have been woven into the fabric of Jewish life, of Jewish halacha, that people don't even realize that the source of them is the Al-Talabah, who's a man of incredible success, incredible, incredible success. And he's the father of Chabad. He's the father of Chabad movement. And there is no question that he's the father of Chabad to this day for people who've studied the Maimotem, today, all of the the vast majority, I would say, probably 90% or 85% of all Chabad discourses have been published. Almost all of the Maimotem from the al himself have been published. Whatever is extant, whatever we have from the middle Rebbe and the Tzemach Tzedek, has been published. The vast majority of Maimorim from the 4th Lubavitcher, Lubavitcher have been published. Almost all of the Maimotem of the 5th Lubavitcher have been published and so forth, and when you examine Chabad, Chasidis carefully you discover something quite interesting that the original mind in Chabad is only the Alter Eber all the Rabbi after the Alter Eber just took his works and modified them, enhanced them there's virtually no original Chasidis besides the Alter Eber, which is an incredible thing to contemplate, you can read an essay of Chasidis written by each one of the seven Ebers and they're exactly the same same questions, same discussions, same analysis, same answers, same conclusions, but each Rebbe enhances it, adds detail, clarifies it, streamlines it, resolves different problems that rise in Kabbalah and so forth. But there's an enormous unity, an extraordinary loyalty in the Chabad model of Hasidus. It's remarkable to see because all of the Rebbe were very, very careful to anchor the Maimodim of the Maimodim that came before them and the father of Chassidus Chabad is the Al Rebbe. And the more you examine this, the more you realize just how creative man, the man was. Every time he opened his mouth, something absolutely brilliant and totally original would fly out. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. Unbelievable life. Unbelievably successful person. And he's our Rebbe. We have a connection to the mountain Rebbe. And we're learning his Tanya. And the Rebbe once said Nefabrengen. Then when we'll Chassidim get together in the Yeretet of a tzaddik, and they talk about him, and they learn his Taira, that's their invitation. They're inviting the, letting the Rebbe <laughs> and inviting the Rebbe. So uh, the Rebbe is a nice man. Nobody should be afraid. <laughs> but when we're learning the tale. The Gemara says, Devevei Sivse Yishenim. The Gemara interprets that whenever a person says Torah from any tzaddik, from any Godel, Sivseye Sivdevevei Sivse That means to say, the Rabbi who you're quoting, his lips are moving in his grave, as you study the Torah of Hillel, or Shammai, or Rav, or Shmuel, or Rabbi Akiva, he speaks, he learns it with you. Which means he gives you the power to understand it. And the same is true of our Rabbi, and our That when we learn the Torah, the Alter Rebbe, this is our invitation. The Alter Rebbe should uh, affect, that the learning should be successful, and it should be, that means to say, learning that translates, into our practical lives, to one degree or another, and as the Alter Rebbe would want it, only with joy, no sadness, no depression, no forlornness, no realism even, (laughs) because everybody knows that uh, there is not a pessimist in the world that calls himself a pessimist, they're just plain simple realists, but uh, we can do without that realism, let's be a little bit on the dreamy side, not too much, just enough, and serve Hashem with joy. So this is the introduction, let's get to the class. We are overviewing, reviewing the Tanya, and fortunately for all of us, mostly myself, we've taken for us a path with no pressure, we're not in a rush, and um, we're exploring the Tanya. Last week, the topic that we focused on was the two souls, the godly soul and the animal soul. We spent a considerable amount of time analyzing the basic characteristics that separate the two. Remember... The godly soul is selfless and visionary and trusting. The animal soul is selfish and short-sighted and always in doubt and always worried. These are core characteristics of these two souls. And we delved into the differences. We also talked about the fact that the divine soul is in the mind and the animal soul is in the heart. Or said in other words, in the godly soul the mind leads the heart. And the animal soul, the heart dictates where the mind can go. And how the mind can look for truth, which of course means that it doesn't have that capacity. We're going to explore this further. We're going to delve into the godly soul. We'll see what we'll do with the animal soul. We'll we'll kick him around maybe (laughs) on another occasion. But the, the topic for tonight is the godly soul. Because there's much, much more to discuss about the soul. And um, the discussion we're going to have tonight is based on chapters 2, 3, and the beginning of chapter 4 in the book of Tanya. You wanted to say something?
1: Um, I forgot later. You, um, you said that they, that all of the other rebellions, from the second through the, this last one, they all expounded on the first Rebbe's works, on the else Rebbe's works. But I have read the works of the latest rabbi, yep, uh, <coughs> uh, rabbi, um, rabbi Schneerson, and it seems very, very different, because a lot of his works deals with Mashiach deals with and Go'ula, and the other, and the first one, I doesn't really talk, doesn't want really to talk about that. And you he, had all his works? Not or? really, but, he, but even the second to the sixth one, so I really didn't read any other works, so I, so I really don't know
0: Right, There's a couple of answers to your question. One of them is it is a difference between talks and discourses, my Maimotem. And what I just said refers specifically to the discourses. Mm-hmm. And what I told you is true. <laughs> Trust me, it's true. And, and um, the, um, the loyalty is very apparent. It, it, you have to take my word for it. Okay. That the, the, the ideas are the same. Each Rebbe would speak a Mime based on the needs of his community and the time he lived in so the Maimotem would change somewhat, the structure, the beginning, the end, but the, the body of my modem is extraordinarily loyal to the Altareme. So let's get to the topic tonight. The topic I want to talk about is the soul. We talked about the godly soul last week, and what we want to talk about today is the details, the form, the structure, the design of the soul. In other words, if last week we talked about the very basic character of the soul, that the, the tendency of the godly soul is to to live for God and to have a, a sentiment, a tendency to want to transcend and lives on trust, let's talk about the, the, the structure, the details, the so-called personality of the soul. And in general, the soul can be divided up into three steps. That's what the Alter Rebbe does here in Netanya. The so-called essence of the soul, the body of the soul, and the expression of the soul. The essence of the soul means the way the soul is connected to its source, to God, <coughs> The form or the body of the soul means the, the, the way the soul operates, uh, how the, op- the soul functions. And the expression of the soul means how the soul communicates with what's outside of itself. In other words, it's connection to higher, what it is, and it's connection to lower. Those are three basic dimensions of the soul. And we'll start from the top. There's something called the essence of the soul. Now, I hate the word essence. There are a few words that are more overused in these kind of environments than the word essence. It's essentially a meaningless word. (laughs) But as long as everybody uses the word essence, and we all sound smart, the, the Hebrew word for essence is etim. And the word etim actually means something in its relationship with itself, which is a very useful translation of the word essence. Something in its relationship with itself as opposed to its relationship with things outside of itself. The soul has an essence. The essence of the soul is that it's godly. That means to say the essence of the soul is it's a creation of God who, that was designed by him to um, have an awareness of God and by the virtue of the fact that it has an awareness of God, its very identity is submission. The most basic characteristic of the essence of the godly soul is bitul, that's the Hebrew word, bitul. Bittl means, there's no translation for Bittl. The, the best that we've come up with over the years is self-nullification, which makes me very nervous, uh, because it's such an inadequate translation. Bittl means a sense that there's something higher than me, and that I exist for that higher thing. It's, it's humility and then some. The basic characteristic of the godly soul in its essence is its sense of what's above itself. It's God, that which is God, of course. And as such, it's... Identity, its purpose, its personality is inherently to serve God. So I want to share with you a number of points about the essence of the soul, but I, I want to tell you for full disclosure purposes that watch, much of what I'm about to say is not in the Tanya. Okay? I'm not making it up because I'm not smart enough. Okay? That's the good news. I couldn't invent this stuff if I wished. <laughs> uh, but I, I want to, when, when we get to stuff that's in the Tanya, I'll tell you. A lot of the information I'm going to share with you immediately now is based on Hasidic interpretations of the soul, or Hasidic additional notes to the soul, but it's not explicitly in the tanya. So I want to be honest with you about it.
1: Which rabbis said this?
0: You name it. Hasidus Chabad is one. Just take my word for it. It's literally one. Seven rabbis all saying the same thing. There's a lot being said, and each one is expounding. On the one hand, there's nothing original. On the other hand, it's totally original. It's special.
1: And it's all based on Sofa.
0: Don't start up with me. <laughs> and the answer is no. It's not? Oh. It's be, it, Zohar is part of the model. Hasidus is not Kabbalah. Hasidus is a unique Shita. In certain fundamental ways, there are differences between Hasidus and Kabbalah. But like I said, I don't want to start up with you, so let's be friends and let's... <laughs> Let's bury the, uh, the hatchet of words. One of the most interesting characteristics of the soul is it called the Pnimi. What? A pnimi. Pei, nun, yud, mem, yud. Pnimi. No. The translation of the word Pnimi, it's probably as uh, rough as the translation of the word etzem, is an entity whose tendency is to be inward. Pnimi to go in. You see, the soul is infinite. That's what it's called. Nobody knows what infinity is. It's a a weird concept, infinity. How do you put a personality on infinity? Infinity, by definition, is boring. It's just infinite. You know, being everything and having every possibility essentially freezes you. So infinity with a personality sounds like a conflict. The soul is, the godly soul is, for better, without going into the subtleties, considered a, a, an infinite power. But it's a raw power, it's a sheer power, it's just a force, it's an energy. Um, the, the three words that are frequently employed to describe the levels of the soul would be it's a light, it's a life, and it's a power. Light would be the highest level, life would be the second level, and power, a physical force, would be uh, the lowest level. The soul is a, is a light and a life and a power which is raw by itself but this raw power this raw life this raw light has certain tendencies and one of them is that it's a pnimi. penimi means it's very very essential nature is to connect to things in other words in Hasidus they talk about infinity (coughs) and they say that there's a very very big downside to infinity
1: Mm.
0: the downside to infinity is that that he, he doesn't care In in the realm of infinite, the expression is good and evil, darkness and light, it's all the same. Because if something is infinite, it doesn't have a tendency, it doesn't have a leaning, it doesn't have a personality, it doesn't have a priority. Everything is included in infinity. So there's an argument to the effect that infinity doesn't care. Who cares? This is an argument made by Apokursum, by secular philosophers as well. The neshama, the soul, is infinite for for the sake of argument, for the sake of simplification but it's a pnimi. That means an Neshamah has a direction, has a conscience, and has a purpose. These, the, 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 the pnimi tendency within the infinite soul, the infinite soul's tendency to be uh, a pnimi, to go in a particular direction, of course, um, is built into the soul's essence by its creator. God Almighty made the soul to have this tendency, to have this direction, to have this uh, purpose. And Chassidus would say that the Tava apnimi, the so to speak, the internal nature of the soul, is an expression of God. In other words, the soul's tendencies towards having a purpose and a direction it gets directly from God. The, the unique characteristics of the essence of the soul it gets directly from Hashem, from God Himself. The first and most important of these characteristics is free will, the ability to make choices. And uh, in the realm of infinity, you could make the case that you can't make any choices because everything is equal or, or every, nothing, even nothing matters or everything matters. The soul, in spite of the fact that it's considered an infinity, has, has a real concept of choice, real freedom of choice. And as Hasidus says it, choice means a decision made that's based entirely on you and based not, on, not at all on the thing which is being chosen. I don't want to go into the philosophy. Please don't ask me any questions because I will not answer them. But the essence of the soul has this tendency towards, premius has this tendency towards being internal. And the first uh, important characteristic associated with this tendency is b'chirah uh, khafshis, is free will. Number two. Number two. This is an interesting one. Okay, And it may not sound like a big deal to you, but believe me, it's a very, very big deal the tendency of the soul is to go out of itself to express itself usually um, if you want to be involved in higher and deeper things you want to go up up means away from a realm that's opened up, that's expanded has details, has limitations you want to go up to a higher level you want to get more involved in in God and in, in, in a raw, in a plain infinity like for example angels The direction of an angel is up. Souls have a need to come down. Souls have a need to make their mark in this world. Although this world is the least godly of all the worlds, it has um, the least in common with God, which is the very source, not just from which the soul comes, but the source of the characteristic, the character of the soul The soul has a need to come down and express itself. The soul has a need to contribute. The soul has a need to make its mark, to come into this world and to make a difference. Even though the soul's coming into this world is at the expense of the spiritual proximity, a spiritual closeness to a richer and a higher and a greater world, the soul at its core needs to come down and is prepared to compromise its own holiness, its own intimacy with God to do a mitzvah, to come into the physical world and make a difference. Because in addition to this teva panimi, this tendency of being panimi, I can't translate it in English, being the source of its free will, its ability to choose, it also has this need to come down into the finite world and make a difference. <clears throat> Number three. And this is, I suppose, a lesser characteristic, but also an important one. The soul has within itself an inherent sense of loyalty. And I'll tell you how I mean it. The soul is infinite. The soul is infinite means, and again, it's, it's arbitrary. The word infinite is very, very arbitrary. Yeah. I don't mean it, and I don't know what it means, but I'm using it, because that's, it just helps us. In other words, it's beyond our comprehension. A soul, theoretically, could give life to multiple bodies at one time. Because the aspect of the soul that can come into a body has to be limited because the bodies are finite. And the, the guf, the body, is limited. Right. The soul is infinite, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. So the aspect of the soul that comes into the body is correspondingly only a small measure, a tiny portion of the soul's possibility. Mm-hmm. But the teva apnemi of the neshama, the tendency of the neshama to be internal, is that even if a small portion of the soul is in a body, the entire remainder of that soul is loyal to that body. The infinite nishama, which is not in our body, is bound to our body. It's loyal to its expression. There's a small, peripheral, lower level of the soul which comes into the guf, to the body and becomes one with the body. As Taita teaches it, when the soul comes into a body, it's not like an electric current making a machine run where the machine is actually stationary and the electricity is using friction to make it move. But rather, when a soul comes into the body, the body itself comes to life. There's a perfect unity between soul and body. When a soul goes into the body, it's not that there's life in the body. The body is living. But it's a very small aspect of the soul that comes down into the body. But the entire soul, the infinity of the soul, what we call Yechida, is loyal, is connected to the tiny aspect of the soul which is stuck in the body. So let's say a person is physically ill. The soul is not sick, the body is sick. And the part of the soul that's affected by the sickness is only that aspect of the soul which is manifest in the body. But the whole soul hurts. Even the infinite dimensions of the soul, they have nothing to do with this world, and nothing to do with the body. The soul has a tendency of, 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 re, of remaining loyal to itself. And uh, even if a small portion of the soul is manifest, the whole of that soul is loyal to that body. So i said three things. And all these three points radiate from one principle. And that is that the soul is inherently A Apnehmic a means he has a tendency of going into something deeply. First of all, that's the basis for the free will of the soul. Second of all, the soul prefers to come down rather than go up, although going down is compromising itself but it becomes useful. And thirdly, the loyalty of the soul. That means to say, even if a small portion of the soul enters into the body, the whole soul is linked to that body. Now if you'll think deeply into what I just said, you'll appreciate that I'm saying something very, very profound. And the profundity is that the soul has a conscience, has a sense of responsibility, has a sense of purpose, and has the freedom to see through that conscience, the freedom to see through that purpose. And when it's committed to something, the soul doesn't do things because they feel good, or they feel right. The soul makes commitments. The soul has, a, has an inherent sense of, of purpose and responsibility and loyalty. Go ahead.
1: Um, yeah, you just said that the soul prefers to come down. I've been told that our souls. Don't
0: tell me what you've been told. You go back to those people and tell them what I said. Okay. Because I'm right in their room.
1: <laughs> okay. But because I've heard that our. our soul... <laughs> you
0: don't take me seriously, huh? Go ahead, keep and talking.
1: I'm, that our soul was forced to come in down into, into this world. Give us a
0: pick <laughs> of us. Give me this Hiddish. So, the, the first thing I'm telling you about the essence of the soul. Remember, the, enf- the infinity, the essence of the soul is no. that it's not characterized by infinity. Because infinity is, by definition, disloyal. Infinity, by definition, shouldn't be able to have free choices. And definition, infinity, by definition, mm. is rising up. It's going into itself rather than expressing itself. The soul, in spite of the fact that we call it infinite, is a pnimi. that means to say. It, it tendency to go in to something. It has free will. It wants to go down rather than go up and it's incredibly loyal. You know, if you take, God has a concept of reincarnation. He takes the soul of a human being and puts them into a rock, <coughs> into a plant, into an animal. And In Kabbalah it's written that reincarnation is excessively painful for the neshama. So when a person's neshama is trapped in an animal, the whole soul, including the yachida, is lined up with that rock or with that animal and is stuck there and they all experience pain. So... So if you're you keeping score at home, this is all point one. The teva of the neshama is to be a panimim. Point two. And point two is quite interesting. Yes ma'am? That has,
1: uh,
0: no, no, it cannot. You missed, you heard me. Can't. Oh, it cannot. will never go into more than one body at a time. Right, you're I said the exact answer. Not even answer. Not even you're you're the Yolgulim is a long story. And uh, the short answer is it never goes into two bodies at the same time. And the long answer, and I will not explain it, When the neshama comes into (laughs) Gilgulim, you now have two souls, not one. How does that work? You'll take it up, you'll study Sefer da together. It's not the same soul coming back a second time. It's it's called a branch of that soul. But that branch becomes a whole new entity. It's a whole new identity with its own essence. When you split an essence in half, you have now two essences. You split that essence in in half. If you need to use a a physical model... But when you when a nishama comes back a second time, you now have two nishamas that have an essence and a form and an expression, and everything I said about a soul applies to every single soul. So point one about souls that they have this tendency towards previous point Point two, and this is interesting. The phrase that is employed in Hasidus to describe a soul is this, and I quote Elakus Shenasa Nivra. I'll say it now in Hebrew, okay? Elakut which means in English, how godliness has become a creation. And I'll explain. The definition of a creation uh, is something which has limitations. The basic limitations of any being is time, space, and self-awareness. And by definition, being a creation is the opposite of being one with God. Being a creation means relating to yourself. Now, once you identify with yourself, you may say, well, me in my own self-identity choose now to relate to God, but then it's the center of you is you and God is added to who you are. Creations are limited because the center of their own selves is themselves. The opposite of a nivra is a lakus, is godliness or svidis or sefirot for the the kabbalim in the room. Svitas are not creations, they're emanations, they're expressions of God. A neshama, a Jewish soul, a godly soul, is unique. There's nothing like it in the whole creation. That it is both godly and a creation at the same time. Which means in practical terms, it's limited and unlimited at the same time. Now how can they both be true? The answer is, we are all blessed with godly souls. And we're regular, ordinary, normal people. There's nothing unusual about a Jew. You don't see on the surface something distinguished or distinct about a Jew from a non-Jew because the godly soul comes down into the body in a way that it's a creation, it's limited. But you scratch the surface of a Jew, you see a power, you see a force, you see an infinity, you see a loyalty, you see a sacrifice, you see a a faith and trust which defies its own limitation. In other words, the way God created the souls, the souls are limited. But underneath the surface, underneath the mask of the limitation of the soul, is an infinite power. And what's unique about the soul is that the soul can access that power. And I'll explain to you what I mean. Everything that exists comes from God. Everything that exists comes from God. Even evil comes from God. And we also know that God is infinite which means the God within each creation is infinite. But there's a concept called klipa. You ever come across klipa? Maybe read about it in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> What's the concept of klipa? The concept of klipa means that Hashem created something using a spark of Himself, but He has denied that creation access to its own godliness. God creates a being using a godly spark but has blocked the connection between a being and its own God. You understand what I'm saying? Things that exist, exist because God not only created them, but He creates them. Klepa means, the truth of my existence is God, the reality of my identity is the denial of that. God made many things to be entirely dependent upon God, and to, to, to spend their entire existence denying that dependency. Because there's a shell, a peel, that does not allow access to their own fire pardon Why? It's cruel. because that's the way God made the world there's a purpose and everybody serves a role a klipa serves its purpose An neshama looks like a klipa when you meet a soul it looks like it's not in touch with its own essence but the term that's used is that in the case of the soul the soul is not ingolous that means imprisoned incapable of accessing its infinity the soul is simply asleep. And all it needs to do is wake up. So although on the surface a soul, a human soul, a soul of ayid, looks limited like any other being, Nivra a creation, a little bit beneath the surface it continues to be godly. And this is the phrase, A lakus nivra, soul is both godly and finite. It manifests in the world in such a form, in such a fashion, in such a way, that it's limited because if the soul were infinite it couldn't fit into this world it could have no function here for the soul to come into a physical body and function in the physical world it has to be restrained has to be contained has to be limited but underneath the surface the infinite power of the soul rests and it can be accessed what makes the Jewish soul special is not that there's God inside it there's God inside everything what's special about the Jewish soul is it's a theoretical possibility and more than a theoretical possibility to access that inner power so those are two characteristics that I would like you to um, appreciate. They are, one, number one, the pneumious tendency of the soul. That means to say that the, 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 the possibility within the Jewish soul to have free will, to want to come down and make a difference in a finite world and this incredible loyalty. And two, the fact that the way the soul is created, it's created to appear as a nivro, as a creation, as a limited being. But underneath, that limited being there's the godly infinite power which can be accessed and that's why it's called a godly soul even though we don't necessarily act like we're such great martyrs on a daily basis which leads me to a very 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 important analog very very important martial that really will bring all of what I just said together one of the most important analogies examples that are used to describe the soul is the relationship between parents and children we're called in the Torah in last week's Passion the beginning of Exodus Hashem's children B'ni mm-hmm. Yisro <laughs> Hasidus takes this allusion Hasidus takes this form literally you know you look in Sifri Machshove in philosophical works they say well we're not God's children He loves us like as if we were children but not in Kabul not in Hasidus. we actually say we are Hashem's children and Hasidus think about children mm-hmm. what do you know about children? You know several things about children. First of all, they have the very essence of the parents within them. The very core of what the parents are. Parents give their children. They give everything they have to their children. We don't mean bank accounts. We mean the very essence. What is the most essential quality? What is the deepest gift that parents give their children? It's the ability for the children to be separate from their parents the greatest gift that parents give children is the greatest gift they got from their parents to grow up. That your identity is not directly linked to your parents, but your identity instead is linked to yourself. The hardest thing for parents to give their children is to let go. And it's the deepest thing. We are creations who have freedom, free will, independence, and that freedom is the source of our loyalty and our commitment and our depth and our integrity. But parents give everything they have to their child. Which means to say the whole of the parent is in the child. And ironically, what does it mean that the whole of the parent is in the child? Is just as the parent is separate from his or her parents, the child is separate from their parents. And we're called God's children. Which means God gives us His very essence. And because he's given us his very essence, we have free will. And we have a purpose. We're not just infinitely confused. We have a purpose. And we have a loyalty. And we have a separateness from him. And our separateness from him is the deepest expression of him. The deepest expression of the godliness within the soul is the fact that the godly soul functions, in quotes, as a separate being, end quote from its creator. And that's the concept of free will, the P'chir So these are some insights uh, that Hasidus discusses in in various different places at great length um, about the very essence of the soul. So I'm going to summarize what I said. The essence of the soul, we're going to call it for the sake of argument, is infinite. It's a very poor word, and it's really not accurate, but we'll use it because of the connotations that it has. But it's not infinite and therefore arbitrary infinite, as infinite is understood philosophically, but it's infinite with a focus, free will or interest and a need to express itself in a finite realm, an unbelievable loyalty, because in God's giving the soul the deepest truth of his own infinity, he has given the soul a separateness from God. The way Hasidus says it, you know why you have free will, because you're godly. And your free will is the godliness within you. And the irony, of course, is the godliness within you is all about your connection to God. Yet in this case, your connection to God translates in your ability to become a partner, in quotations, with God and His purpose because you have your own self-identity. These are some of the characteristics of the essence of the soul. And I want to repeat again, not one word of what I just said is written explicitly in the Tanya. Okay? I incorporated this into our discussion Like I said at the beginning, believe me, I didn't make it up. I'm simply not that bright. Uh, It says in Hasidis, but this is a very, very good insight into what we call the essence of the soul. We're going to come back to the essence of the soul later. Then the soul has to relate to other souls. The problem with infinity (coughs) is that it can only exist in relationship with itself. A soul, as I just described it, with all the wonderful characteristics and contradictions that it entails can have no relation with anything outside of itself. Because for two beings to relate to one another they need to have space. Each being needs to have its own space. They need to have shared space and in that shared space they have to leave room for one another. Infinity has the capacity for none of the above and therefore the soul has a form. For lack of words, we call it the body of the soul. That means the soul, the way it functions, not in relationship with itself, but the way it relates to other things. This is called the tzir, the form, how the soul looks. In other words, at its core, the soul is infinite. At its core, the soul is focused and loyal and independent. But the core of the soul is wrapped, is draped in layers, in dimensions, in a personality that make it distinct. And this personality, in addition to making it distinct, makes it, for lack of words, interactive. It can relate to things outside of itself. And the Hebrew word that is used to describe the personality of the soul, that makes the soul interactive, is the word kochot, koiches, the faculties of the soul, the tools of the soul. And there are two categories of these tools. Intellectual tools and emotional tools. Moichen and Midas. The intellect of the soul and the emotions of the soul. Neither intellect nor emotion can express the infinity of the soul. And I'll explain it to you very plainly. If your infinite soul decides that it wants to color purple, and I would meet you, the infinity of your soul marching around on the ocean now, and you say, why do you like the color purple? What would the soul say? Because, because I want. What kind of an explanation is that? the infinity of the soul does everything in an infinite way. So it's, it's purple or nothing at all. It's my way or the highway. There's no, there's no negotiating. There's no discussion. Every expression of the infinite soul does the entire infinity of the soul. Intellect and emotion are limit, limited. And when I come to you and say, why are you wearing a purple hat and you give me an explanation, I can argue with you. We can discuss it. Because now I have reduced, I have contained the soul in a framework, in a context where other beings, other souls can discuss, can say, you, you want it and this is your explanation, well let me give you a different explanation. Let's see it in an alternative in a different way and so forth. This is called the, the, the faculties of the soul or the character of the soul that permits the soul to have a relationship with things outside of itself. And as I told you, there are two broad categories, these faculties, the intellectual faculties and the emotional faculties. Now, The reason the soul is defined as having two broad categories of faculties is very, very simple. And it requires a short little piece of introduction. And that is, Hasidus teaches us that human beings are unique in the respect that they are um, vertical. They walk upright as opposed to horizontal. And it's explained in Hasidus that the physical design of a human body, that it walks upright rather than being horizontal where the head and the body and the rear are on equal levels more or less, is a reflection of the inner workings of the soul. The soul is unique because it has a higher level and a middle level and a lower level. As opposed to an animal, that also has three levels. But since they're horizontal, one is not above the other. And this means, in other words, you have a mind, an intellectual possibility, And you even have the possibility to employ the mind against your emotional tendencies. The heart feels, the heart reacts. The heart is very passionate, very emotional, and very subjective. The mind has the ability to go past, to separate, to dispersonalize, to be removed from the emotional person, and as a result, to look at things objectively, to see things for what they really, really are. The human mind was designed by God to be above the body to be above the heart. The heart should not be able to contain it. When your emotions, when your passion itself has interests that are limited to the realm of the animal, which is what the emotions are, the brain says, I can transcend that. I can separate. I can remove myself from my emotional self and seek truth in areas and on levels that are completely beyond what my heart is capable of feeling. In other words, the the distinction of the mind is its ability to be cold and objective. The heart is the exact opposite of that. The very definition of the emotions is not what things are, but what things are to me. The nature of the heart is its subjectivity. That means to say, not what something is, but what something is in relationship with me. That's what the heart is. My emotions cannot feel something which goes against my my tendency, against my nature. So the mind's tendency, the mind's possibility is to be objective, to go past itself and to find theoretical truth. The emotions, uh, the emotions, uh, tendency, emotional tendency is not to be able to go past itself and that everything that it, experience, it experiences in a very subjective and a very, very personalized way. To say this in a cliche form, in a, in a, in, you know, in a bumper sticker like way, I'll put it to you this way. The greatest asset of the mind is its coldness is the ability to, to study things in a way that has nothing to do with me. The greatest weakness of the mind is its coldness. The greatest asset of the heart is how passionate and how personal it is. And the greatest limitation, the greatest inhibitor of the heart, is its passion and its subjectivity. So we have these two sets of tools. The mind is a tool which you and I can use to negotiate. If I say something reasonable, you can count to it with another reason. Even Torah comes down into this realm, so we can discuss Torah. Could you imagine if Taita was expressing the infinity of God? All you have to do is follow. There's no discussion. There's no internalization. Because it's the essence, the infinity. By Taita taking on an intellectual body, we can debate it, we can discuss it, we can interpret it. We come up with different interpretations. There's room for a variety of interpretations because the essence has been packaged in a form that's reasonable, that's limited, and that can be shared. But the primary strength, the primary idea of the mind, the mind allows us to go past our limited selves. In other words, there's more to life than cars and uh, things, there's ideas. The heart gives us the ability to take this that the mind discovered and personalize it. That my heart allows for me to become passionate about things that I am naturally not passionate about because they're beyond my banal beyond my basic self the human mind can find the truth the human heart can allow the truth to become relevant to myself you know, there's a great story that illustrates this so simply about a, uh, a peasant farmer who was great with the cows and the chickens and the wheat and the barley but he couldn't read and he hired a malamed for his children a tutor for his children the tutor could read and write, and the peasant got a letter that his father died. So he says to the tutor, Do me a favor and read the letter on what it says. So the tutor reads the letter and he says, I'm sad to inform you that your father, Chvesvos Baruch Shloime Yeruchim Ben Chvesvos El Yochim died. So the Muhammad is reading the letter and he says those words, and the Yeshuvnik faints on the spot. So the, of course he revives him and he brings him back to himself and then the malamed says to the yeshuvnik, tell me, I read the letter. You heard my interpretation of it. Which means in theory, I am one step closer to the event than you are. How come you fainted and I didn't? So the yeshuvnik says, Mind, you may be smarter than me, but this touches my heart. It's my father. So the mind can understand. But if the heart doesn't feel, there's not, very, there's not much practical use for what the mind has discovered. The previous Rebbe, Nasikha, tells an interesting episode, a story, about three Hasidim who were sitting together. And they weren't just three Hasidim, they were three generations. Their names were, and I'm sure you're all going to recognize them, it's like yeah. Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and uh, Mickey Mantle or Joe DiMaggio. <laughs> who, are <them?
1: laughs>
0: who are them? Very good, I'm proud of you. Um, and if you're a liar, I'm proud of you anyway. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, one was a the second of Isaac Homler and the third of the Pesach Malas They were separated in years, probably by 35 or 40 years. Zalman Zezma was probably 20 years older than Isaac Homler, who was an equal Z- number of years older than Pesach Malas They were all Chassidim of the Alter Rebbe. Because the Alter Rebbe was long enough, a Rebbe, Rebbe for long enough to have actually like three generations of Chassidim, And his first generation of chassidim were, were so brilliant, so intelligent, they were like not human. The second generation of Alter Rebbe's Chassidim were great people, but they at least were people. <laughs> the younger generation of that ever were on a lower level still. Rabbi Zalman Zazmir, this senior chassid, was, was an extremely smart man. It's, the way his intelligence is described, it, it, it's beyond the computer. He was absolutely an infinite mind. But he was a cold person. He was a cold person because he lived in the world of his mind. He was so, his mind was so strong that everything he processed so quickly and he was constantly it, he was a chasid which means that he he had feelings I mean he can't be religious without emotions and faith but he was strictly an intellectual that Pesach Malastavke was probably 35 years his, his junior was a chasid believe me we don't come to his toes or to his shadow but he was nowhere near the Madrig of <laughs> so the three chasidim was sitting around and this young chasid says to this old chassid, I give you a blessing that your heart should feel what your mind understands. I give you a blessing that your heart should feel what your mind understands. It's a very, very big chutzpah. It it was out of place for a young guy to tell such a senior chassid such words. So the middle chassid, the referee, (laughs) who repeated this story, says, I I witnessed this. And it was obvious to me that this young chassid was was not his place to tell this, this giant of what he needs to do but I observe two things he says and I'll say it in Yiddish first I was impressed by two things as I saw that the young Chassid told the old Chassid what he said with Mesidus Nefesh he knew he shouldn't have said it and he knew he wasn't the person to say it but he knew that that chassid needs to hear it. So he put himself aside and said it. And the old chassid took it from him. Was humble enough to hear it. I was impressed by the sacrifice of the young chassid and the integrity and the humility of the older chassid. But it is about the combination of the mind and the heart. Because the mind allows us to pursue EmS, Not just physical emis, but transcendent emis. Akhar metaphysics, <laughs> is the the emis. Or a godly truths. And the heart provides the possibility that the truth that we discover should matter to us. This is the body of the soul. This is the form of the soul. If the essence of the soul is an infinite plainness, as I described it, with these interesting characteristics, that it's a teva apnimi, and it's a lakus shanas it has a tendency to go into things. And although it's infinite, it was created by God to be a creation, to have its own self-identity, the form of the soul is the combination of its ability to see things objectively and its counter ability to make it's discovered objectively subjective, matter. It's not enough to understand God, you have to care about God. And to care about God, there used to be a certain measure of emotions and emotions are subjective, emotions are selfish, emotions are a reflection of myself, not a reflection of the truth. But we have to learn intellectually and translate what we learn at least in portion, in part to our emotional domain there's an interesting little episode the Alter Rebbe the author of the Tanya who's art Scientist tonight um, was a very humble man unfortunately (laughs) as a Chabad Chasid, I dare say so he was exceptionally humble and um, he actually went from Rebbe to Rebbe when one Rebbe passed away instead of assuming the position of Rebbe himself he chose a second Rebbe and then a third Rebbe when his third Rebbe passed away, he had nobody else to lean on, so he had no choice <coughs> but to become his own person. The third of his Rebbes was a Jew by the name of Reb Mendel of Haredok, Reb Nachah Mendel of Haredok. And the Alt-Rebbe went to visit his Rebbe, a Yomtiv, and the Tam Simchas Taira, and all the Hasidim were gathered, and they were waiting for the Rebbe, for the Holy Master, to come out of his room to participate in the HaKafas, the celebration of the dancing with the Taira, and he's not emerging and a half an hour passes and an hour passes and two hours pass, and three hours pass and people became disturbed so they went to the Al Rebbe and said listen nobody has the nerve to disturb the Rebbe but you're his friend they had been Talmudim of the Magid yet together go into the Rebbe see what's going on so the Altar Rebbe very respectfully walks into the the middle of Yitavsky's office and he sees that some at night is Rebbe is sitting very distraught very disturbed he says, Rebbe, why do you look so upset? And do you realize that there are hundreds of people waiting for you outside? So he says to the Al Rebbe, I've just discovered 50 new interpretations of the Ata of the passages we read before our kafas. Mm-hmm. And I refuse to emerge until I internalize those 50, until I make, bring them into myself. Mm-hmm. So the Alta Rebbe says to him, Masha'Allah, it's like a person who's trying to chase the horizon. Mm-hmm. The closer you get to the horizon, the more distant the horizon becomes. If you will internalize those 50 interpretations, you'll find 50 more, and 50 after that, and 50 beyond that. The mind will always be beyond the heart. But the effort of a person is to use the mind to find truth. And the effort of the heart is to make us care that what we understand intellectually to be true, we should emotionally feel and experience. This is the two sides of the soul the intellectual side and the emotional side, they join together to become, in quotes, the form of the soul. The form is wrapped around the essence to make the soul interactive. Interactive means it can come into a body, it can relate to other souls, it can relate to other things. The essence of the soul is, as every essence, it exists in its own world, only in relationship with itself. So the infinite soul, by having a form, is able to interact. And the infinite soul wants it. Because as I discussed with you in the beginning, the very basic nature of the infinite soul is that it wants a connection. It can't have that connection without its form, without its limiting characteristics or qualities that allow it to be relating to things outside of itself. Go ahead.
1: Um, The interaction between the two chassids that you were discussing before with the younger chassid said what he said to the older chassid and you felt, and the middle, and the middle chassid thought that it was out of place. Wasn't it more that the younger chassid had identified the shortcomings of the older chassid, and the, and the older chassid accepted what the younger chassid had to say, being able to identify his own shortcomings?
0: It wasn't the kind of shortcoming that needed identity, identification. It was quite known <laughs> by everybody, including the senior chassid. <coughs> We have to know the particulars of that episode, which I don't know if we know in their entirety. But this is the Achilles heel of every very smart person, mm-hmm. that they're naturally not that emotional. And as a religious person, they need passions. of says, maybe because he was so brilliant, his toe was an intellectual. I mean, every fiber of his being was intellectual. And the idea that you have to step away from the mind to experience things as a human being, was almost against his nature but a very important part of Hasidism I don't think he needed to hear it but I suppose for whatever reason there was usefulness in it being communicated and therefore this credibility to this story what do
1: you do if you
0: don't have it? what? Or do you develop it? Like oh so the Hasidic solution is the, his bondness meditation you have to think about the Ebishter but
1: he such for a, such a high
0: madrug, he did you know don't that? need such a well no Zama was plenty emotional no. but his emotions no. were quiet Let's not analyze him, let's analyze I'm ourselves. talking about people <laughs> today that learn Torah and have no emotions at all. Yeah, because they have to learn Hasidus. It's not enough to learn Tehre. Because you learn Tehre, you're learning ideas, not learning about the Epshter. If you want to experience feelings towards Hashem, you have to learn about Hashem. And in the Gemara, you're not going to learn about Hashem. You can learn about business, intera- relationships, and so forth. Now, this is the second dimension of the soul. And then there's the third dimension of the soul, the periphery, <laughs> the outer level of the soul we've talked about the essence of the soul and its basic model we've talked about the form of the soul and now we're going to talk about the expression of the soul the expression of the soul means as the soul actually speaks and the Hebrew term for the expression of the soul is called the levushim the garments the levushim, the garments of the soul and the garments of the soul are as garments are to a person you can take them off and you can put them on you can't change your nature. You can't change your personality. You can't change your character, but you can choose to speak other words. You can choose, guess what, not to speak at all. You can choose to act or not to act. You can even choose what to think. You can't choose whether to think, but you can choose what to think. <coughs> the the periphery of ourselves, we are masters over, and we can relatively speaking change them easily. And there are three garments. That's how it's explained: thought, speech. Action. And the basic difference between the three is, I'm going to explain it to you, is thought is a human being's communication with himself. Speech is a human being's communication with other people. And action is a human being's communication with other things, be they animals, plants, or minerals. And these three garments are at relative distances from the soul. Naturally, in thought, we can give out much more of our depth, much more of our intellect and our emotion than in speech. And naturally, in speech, we can give out much more of our depth than in deed. Behaviors never have the capacity to communicate subtlety and nuance the way words do and the way uh, uh, thoughts do. And these three garments of thought, speech, and deed allow us to interact with other people in the physical world. This is the expression of the soul. In other words, expression of the soul means as the soul communicates. You'll see Amir Tzashem, not tonight, but in a subsequent class, the animal soul mirrors everything I just said. The animal soul has similar characteristics to the godly soul in everything I just said, except that it's equal and opposite. Everything we said about the godly soul is true, the animal soul, inversely, backwards. And Mitzcham will talk about it. I, I can't promise you it'll be next week, it may be the week after next, it may be two weeks from now, depending on how I structure the subsequent classes. But we're going to talk about the animal soul. And I will then also incorporate thoughts that are not written in the Tanya, that are written in other places in Hasidus, as I did tonight, to make the class comprehensive. Um, but it's interesting to observe what the al says very emphatically. The difference in the godly soul and the animal soul is not just in their essence. It's not even in their form. It's even in their expression. Which means, you're sitting and studying a page of Talmud. And in the middle, someone plops down in front of you a page of geometry. And you begin to study it. You've just changed souls. It, it feels very fluid. You're a person. And you're only one in your consciousness and your awareness. But you have two souls. And two souls means two sets of intellectual faculties. And even two souls of garments. Two, there's thought, speech and deed to the divine soul, thought, speech and deed to the animal soul. So if you're in the middle of praying, and your mind wanders in and out of the prayer, you know, between the prayers and the parking tickets, and between the prayers and the parking spots, and the prayers and the job, and the prayers. and <coughs> You're literally changing souls each time, because even on the level of what we think, speak, and do, there's two, th- two sets of thought, two sets of speech, two sets of deed. Every act, speech, or thought of Yiddishkeit comes from the garments of the divine soul, Every act, speech, or thought that's non yiddish kai doesn't have to be bad, it's just to be not good, is coming from the animal. So, so I suppose you could say that being focused is a great idea because it's changing souls all the time. It sounds like it's kind of exhausting. <laughs> and being focused means locking in and employing one neshama, one nefesh at a time. I, I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's, it's important to appreciate that the Alter separates the two souls not just at their core, not just in their form, but even in their expression. They're two completely separate beings. The godly soul has its own shirt, its own coat and tie, and its own, uh, whatever, its roof over its head, its own thought, its own speech, and its own deed, as does the animal soul. So we've, we've covered the three dimensions of the soul. The so-called essence of the soul, the form of the soul, and the expression of the soul. Etzem, koiches, and levushim. Essence, faculties, and garments. And we've touched on a lot of subjects. I hope I haven't frightened you away. I hope I've given you something to to take and to <coughs> hold and to, with God's help, reach, um, chew it over some more and, and gather it. Um, but before the class concludes, there's another very, very important area that I must touch on, which in a way is a built-in contradiction to some of the things I said earlier. And that is the relationship between souls, the relatedness of souls. We started the class talking about the essence of the soul. Then we talked about the form of the soul, and then we talked about the expression of the soul. We are really going back now to the discussion of the essence of the soul. And this notion that a godly soul is called godly becomes very important at this particular juncture. Because one of the different distinctions between godliness and the opposite of godliness is unity and division. And godliness is connection. And in Klipa there's division, separation. Just as each being is separated from its own godly spark, each being is separated from every other being. In Tanya chapter 2, the bulk of the chapter, the majority of the chapter, doesn't discuss the essence of the soul. It discusses the relationships of the soul. The relationships of the soul with God, and the relationships of the soul with other souls. And it's predicated on this principle that the soul is godly. Godly means it's humble, it's bittled before God and therefore connected. <laughs> Chapter 2 begins with two statements. Statement number one is very familiar that the godly soul is a piece of God from above mamish, whatever mamish means. The second statement is saw Oluv machshav that the Jewish soul comes from Chochmah. From where? From Chochmah Chochmah of Atzilas. is is on the way to the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, the difference between these two forms, saying the soul is a part of God and saying the soul comes from chokhmah is really the difference between speaking Hasidicese and speaking Kabbalah. <laughs> In the language of Kabbalah, the Neshama comes from Chokhmah. In the language of Hasidic, the soul is a part of God. There's a lot of similarity between these two phrases. I don't want to delve into the two phrases because it's... it's, it's for, the purposes of this discussion not that important. But the point is the soul comes from God. Now the question of course becomes doesn't everything and of course the answer is of course everything comes from God. So then what's so special about a soul? And the answer is the soul's connected. The difference between Kedusha and Klippa between beings that are godly and beings that are not godly is everything not only comes from God but has a spark of God within it, which is the truth of its very existence. But in klipa, you're not capable of getting in touch with the godly spark, which is yourself. And in Kedusha, there's a link. Jewish souls are godly. That means to say they're connected to God. Now, we can talk about the measure of consciousness of this connection, how aware is the soul of its connectedness to God, but this is nevertheless the truth. Every Jewish soul, because it's godly, not only comes from God, that link, that connection between itself and God, continues. And the al Rebbe discussed at length that there's different levels of souls, which I'm going to explain to you soon. There are all different types of souls. It's not one size fits all. There's big ones and little ones and fat ones and skinny ones, high ones and low ones, deep ones and shallow ones. But all souls, in as they are godly souls, continue to be attached to their source, notwithstanding the, the, the enormous distance that may develop between the soul and God as the soul... <laughs> descends from level to level and is diminished and diminished and diminished and made smaller and smaller and smaller. The smallest soul of the lowest Jew is godly. And in as much as that is concerned, it remains linked to God in some way consciously and certainly in a subconscious way. This is point one. Point two, that all souls are linked to each other. And this is where Kabbalah comes into the, sch- to the scheme, comes into the picture. The Alter Abed discusses at great length that the understanding of the evolution and creation of souls is analogous to the development of a fetus, of a baby. A fetus begins with a single point, And that single point is a self-contained entity, right? First, the fetus is free-floating and only afterwards does it implant. Souls are first separate. Bodies are first separate from their mother. Then they attach themselves to their mother for nourishment. But they're first separate entities and then they draw from their parent but they're not expressions of their parent they're, they're creations of their parent and it's one point that multiplies one becomes two two becomes four and four becomes eight and eight becomes sixteen and so forth and it begins to diversify and over the course of nine months various different aspects of the baby develop naturally the things that developed first are the things that need the most time to mature and therefore the deepest aspects of the person either the mind or the heart I believe that in Sifri Machshov there's actually an argument where the baby begins from. They begin from the brain, they begin from the heart. And uh, on that basis, there's discussion about where the soul enters the person, the brain or the heart. There's a discussion among Chakri Yisrael. There's ways of resolving all these issues. This is far beyond the scope of tonight's discussion. Mm -hmm. But the innermost aspects of the person develop first. And as the fetus develops, lesser and lesser significant aspects develop. And at the very, very end of the pregnancy, the, the baby develops skin, hair, and nails, which is the most peripheral, the least necessary aspects of a person. This is the muscle. And the nimshal is, once upon a time there was one soul. Just one. And its name was Adam. Adam and And Adam's soul split and became many souls. If you want it to be strictly Kabbalistic, we'll say it became seven. Seven? Seven. But you see, when Adam's soul splits, it's not like each soul has one seventh of Adam. Adam's soul is an essence. As I explained to you before, when an essence splits in half, you now have two essences. And those seven souls are the parent souls, are the seven basic categories of Jewish souls that continue to split and to radiate lower and lower and lower. Reincarnation, Gilgulim, is a part of this scheme when a soul was in this world and goes up and comes back again, it's actually a new soul. It's a parent soul and a child soul. A branch of the original. And in Kabbalah, the higher souls, the souls that are higher up, are much more consciously godly. They're much stronger. They're much greater. And as you descend lower, the souls are of a lesser dimension. Just like in a fetus. What forms first is the deepest and what forms last is the most shallow. The same is true of souls. And there are myriads of souls. For those who care about mathematics, there are 600,000 root souls represented by the 600,000 Jews that left Egypt. We'll read about next week. And each root has 600,000 sparks. That means 360 billion possible souls. That's a lot of souls. Each one of these souls exists in theory. Every time a child is born, a soul has been created. A spark, which was simply a finger or a toe or a hair of a parent becomes a brand new entity. Understand that just like when a baby is born to the gestation, the soul gestates, the soul cooks. Every time a neshama comes into this world, it's created. The essence is wrapped by a form and garmented with layers. And then when that person passes away, that neshama doesn't disappear. It now exists, and it exists for posterity. That's why it says in Kabbalah that any human being who ever lived will have a amesin as long as they did one good deed even if it's the same soul being reincarnated again and again and again, because each time a soul is being reincarnated, actually the creation of a new soul, a branch on a lower level. And the result of this, of course, is that there are very few very great ones, and there are many, many, many very ordinary ones. That's just the way it goes. And in terms of history, in earlier generations, the Jews in general had greater souls, and in later generations, Jews have lesser souls. Our generation is called the heel. All of us come from the heel of the great Adam, which is very, very encouraging, huh? The only good news about being the heel is that we're tough and insensitive, right? Because we have a rough exterior, and nobody can possibly insult us or hurt our feelings because we're tough. Isn't that the case, huh, Jeffrey? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, there's cuts in the in the in the in the hard skin of the soul, um, but that's how it works. Earlier generations were, as a rule, greater souls, later generations were lesser souls. But within each generation, you have represented all of these layers. Which explains, says the Tanya, several points. Several points. Point number one, all souls are connected. All souls are connected. We come from one source, and though we've radiated, and as we radiate, each one becomes its own entity, but because we're dealing with the lakus, we're dealing with godliness, we're not dealing with klipo. That we're dealing with a realm of unity rather than the realm of division and disparateness. Even though we are separate, we're still linked. Spiritually we connect. And this is the basis for the discussion of Ahavat Israel, of love of your fellow Jew, in chapter 32 of the Tanya. The pasuk says, it says in the Chumash, love your fellow as you love yourself. And the argument is made that it's impossible. There's no way to love somebody else as you love yourself. You can love somebody a little bit, or a lot, or an awful lot, but everybody loves themselves more than love another person. But the message of the tanya is you're not loving somebody else. You're loving yourself. Because at the level of the soul, there's a link that makes us one. That's one message. The second message is we have different roles. Because we're different. Some souls are part of the proverbial eyes of others. some are part of the proverbial head of others. some of the arms, some of the legs, some of the heart, some of the lungs, and some of the feet. And our function, what God expects of us, is anchored in the neshama. In, in the we, we're given different souls, different expectations, different possibilities, and different missions. It also explains, says the Tanya, a unique connection between all the souls of a particular generation. All Jews who live in the world at the same time belong to one body. Although cosmically body. one body, although from other Medish till Mashiach, all souls are one, in each generation, in a smaller way, all the Jews of that generation are one body. So every Jew alive today has a unique connection to every other Jew living today because our souls come from the same realm. There's a very strong constant here. And lastly, and most importantly, or also very importantly, is the mystical interpretation about the connection between Jews and tzaddikim and Holy Jews. Rebis. The idea is that many Jews live. Very few of us are very great. And Those Jews who are very great, that means to say they have higher souls. But having higher souls means that they come from a deeper part of this spiritual body. And the greatest Jews of the generation are called the eyes of the generation or the head of the generation. And in addition to the idea that we're all connected, as a ge- in general, there is a very special connection between the Yid and the Tzaddik. Because mystically speaking, the soul of the common Jew actually is a branch, is a spark, is a chip from the Neshama of the Tzaddik.
1: <clears throat>
0: and this is a mystical insight. This is really written in Kabbalah Darizal. You can't blame this on the Tadiyah. It say the Sefer gulim, but the Alter Rebbe makes it a priority that by Hasidim there was such an important place for the relationship between the Hasid and the Rebbe and the Tzaddik. And of course many people were disturbed by it because they felt it was excessive. But it's a cornerstone of Hasidim. It's maybe the most important part of Hasidic culture is the connection to the common and the Tzaddik. Based on the belief that this connection is not just a conscious connection. It's not just when you go to the tzaddik, he teaches you or inspires you or he counsels you. But based on the assumption that there's an intimate connection. All souls are connected. There's a very special connection between the Rosh Hashem, all the heads of the generation, and the Jews of their respective generation, because we connect to Hashem through them. Our souls are sparks, are branches of their neshama. And this is really the source and the tanya for the whole concept of a rebbe. And going to a rebbe, And believing that the the Rebbe has a very special spiritual connection to all of us, and his leadership and his counsel and his guidance is not only based on his intelligence, but it's based on his spiritual inner sense, because there's a deep inner connection between all Jewish souls, and the tzaddik feels it. A Rebbe, a nasi, a tzaddik, a holy man feels this connection, and when you go to a tzaddik, his holiness allows him to have a very special connection to your neshama. Which is even more of a connection to your soul than you can possibly have it yourself so this is this is these are some th- this is a final component to the discussion that we 're having tonight in addition to explaining the connection between the soul and God we 're also explaining the connection between one soul and the next, explaining the idea that all souls have different functions, different roles, and explaining finally this idea which is so important to Hasidus, why it's so necessary for a person to have a connection to the tzaddik, to the Rebbe, not just to the rabbi, but to the holy person, because the Nishamas of the tzaddik uh, have a very deep inner connection between the, between the Nishamas of their respective generation. And in a narrower way, you can explain when one person is drawn to one tzaddik, another person is drawn to another tzaddik, because uh, in a more immediate way, in a more local way, this person's soul has an inherent connection to this another person's soul has an inherent connection to a different person's tzaddik, And there's a Rebbe, there's a head of the generation, this is only one. Okay? So we'll call it a class. Okay?